Well, good morning and welcome back. I do apologize if it's a little bit chilly. We're in that weird time of the year where we're trying to transition from our heat, from our cold to our heat. So I turned it up, but we'll try to get that dialed in a little bit better next week. But hopefully you'll be able to stay awake then for the sermon because when it's cold, it's a little bit harder to do that. Well, we are continuing in our journey through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we've been in it for a handful of weeks now. And this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, and we've been examining what it has to teach us. We've looked at the Thessalonians' steadfast hope in Jesus and their willingness to labor for Christ. And this has led to their faith expanding beyond their city, to being known in other places around Macedonia. Even in the midst of the conflict that Paul faced as he preached the gospel to them, they're seeing that it bore fruit in the lives of the Thessalonians. And the fruit that was born is that these men and women in Thessalonica are walking in the way of the Lord. They're following the Lord in their pursuit of him, trying to live lives that reflect the gospel that they received from Paul and Silas and Timothy. And so today we're going to continue to examine chapter 2 and see what this letter has to teach us as we too try to walk in a manner worthy of God. Before we dive in, let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for your word today. Thank you that we can open up and learn from it each and every week, Lord, that you are our guide. That through the Holy Spirit in us, you convict and encourage and teach us. And so, Lord, give us open ears and soft hearts this morning that we may receive what it is that you want to say to us now, here in this moment, and that our lives would be changed for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, has anyone here ever received a gift that you feel like you kind of wasted? It's something that you received at some point in your life that maybe you didn't use as much as you thought you would, or maybe it sat on a shelf and was forgotten about. I don't know about you, but I remember one specifically in my life. I remember when I saw it at the store one day when I was shopping with my mom before Christmas, and it was this giant erector set. The box was probably at least this big, and I thought, I want that with my eyes wide, thinking of all the possibilities that I could build with this set. Well, I put it on my Christmas list and I waited with anticipation for Christmas morning and Christmas morning came and I unwrapped the giant erector set. And I remember opening up and being overwhelmed by the number of pieces. Looked at the instructions and thought, how in the world do I build any of this? And then I set to work building a car and it had a little battery that helped it move forward and I built one car with the help of my older siblings and my dad, and we finally got to work and to run, and I put it away, and I don't think I ever built anything else again. In fact, about five years ago, my mom found it in their garage and said, Jason, here's your erector set. You need to do something with it because we don't want to hold it any longer. It was something, a gift that I largely wasted. I thought I'd use it a ton, and yet I put it away and neglected it and never used it. And it's one thing for us to waste a gift that's given to us by someone who's dear to us. But what if the giver of the gift is God himself? How sad it would be for us to squander or ignore or to completely reject a gift that God has given to us. Something that he has crafted and cultivated to be meaningful to each one of us, to change our very lives. And Paul knows the importance of the manner in which we receive the gifts given to us by God. 
In fact, we see him speak about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about the gifts that God has bestowed upon us. And here in our text today, in the passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see Paul celebrate the response of the Thessalonians to the gift that God has given them, this gift of the Word of God in their lives. So today, let's take a look at how the Thessalonians respond to the gift that God has given to them and see how we too can rightly receive this tremendous gift that God has given us in His Word. If you would turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 12, we're going to be looking, sorry, chapter 2, excuse me, we're going to be looking at verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. This is what Paul says in verse 13. He says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So verse 13, where we're jumping in today, reminds us a lot of chapter 1, verse 2, where Paul tells the Thessalonians that they give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And here in 2.13, Paul once again reiterates the idea that he and his companions, Silas and Timothy, who he's writing this with, that they're thanking God constantly for the Thessalonians. And Paul here, as he says, they thank God constantly. That Greek word that he uses for constantly means without intermission, incessantly, without ceasing. Paul's not just thanking God one time and being done with it. It's not a box he's checking where he's saying, I need to remember to pray for the Thessalonian church and I'll give God thanks and check I'm done with it. But Paul is continually thanking God for the life of these Christians. This time they're giving thanks for the response that the Thessalonians have had to the gift of the gospel message. Paul says that they thank God when they received the word of God, that they received it not as words of men, but as the word of God. So Paul tells us right here how the Thessalonians received their words when they came and preached to them. They didn't view it just as words of Paul and Silas and Timothy, things that were encouraging them to live their life in a certain way, but they viewed it as God's word speaking through Paul and Silas and Timothy. They received the word from them, but it was God's word and not theirs. You see, when we are obedient to God's call to share the gospel like Paul was, like Silas and Timothy were as well, we see that God will use those efforts for his glory. God used Paul and his commitment to share the gospel message, to impact lives, to glorify God through his message. And the Thessalonians' lives were changed forever because of Paul's willingness to go and to share with them what the Lord had taught to him. God uses them in sharing the gospel message. And the Thessalonians don't just hear it, but they accept it. It's not just words from men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Think with me about the implications of this. It can be easy for us to have heard this so many times that we forget the weight of these words. That the message that was proclaimed by Paul, the same message that we have written down in our Bibles today, that it is the word of God. The weight that that should have in our lives should be above anything else, that we have the word of God that we're given and that we have such great access to it as Western Christians, that any of us can grab a Bible at any time or find it on our phone even and be able to access these words of God. What a treasure 
it is. The Word of God, that we would treasure it in such a way that it is our most prized possession. It's the ultimate treasure map. Nothing else compares to it. I saw a little video this week that someone produced. Uh, It was a pastor, and it said, what if Christians treated their Bibles like their phone? And it showed him wake up in the morning and roll over immediately and grab his Bible and start reading it. And he's sitting at a table eating breakfast, and he's reading his Bible, and he's walking down the street reading his Bible like this. Because so often, that's what people do with our phones, right? We're on them all the time. They're constantly within reach of us. We never let them out of our sight. We always have them. We always make sure they're charged and available. What if we treated the Word of God in a similar manner? What if we were as dependent upon the Word of God as we are upon our phones? If we held it as a prized possession in our lives. Well, not only did the Thessalonians receive the Word of God, but it is at work within their lives. Paul says it's at work in you, believers. You see, when we accept the Word of God, When we believe it, when we say that Jesus is king, the Spirit goes to work in our lives. And the result of this is transformation. Correction as well, which is a good thing. It's not always easy to be corrected or disciplined by the Holy Spirit, but it's a good thing because that correction is helping move us on the right path. It's helping correct our behavior from what it is that it shouldn't be to what it is to walk in God's ways. That correction aligns us with God's will. And that when it's at work in our lives, the result should be a glorifying of God and a blessing of a right relationship with the Lord. The word of God is at work in believers because the word of God is living and active. And you've heard me say that before. You've heard me pray that on Sundays as we prepare to dive into a text. But it comes from Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 which says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You see, the author of Hebrews who we don't know who it is, and the Apostle Paul both knew the power and might of the Word of God. They had both experienced this transformational power in their lives, and they desired to see others experience it in the same way. The Enduring Word commentary in talking about this text today says that Paul believed in a voice that speaks to mankind with the authority of eternity and speaks above mere human opinion. Since we do have this word of God, we have a true voice of authority. You see, Paul is showing here the difference between the message of human origin, words of men, and the gospel message, which is truly the word of God. These aren't just wise sayings to follow or good advice to adhere to, but this is God's word that he has given to Paul to proclaim to the Thessalonians. And this is why we see that Paul can preach with such power and with such authority because he held a conviction in his life that the words he was saying were not just his thoughts, were not just his words, or how he thought life should be lived, but that these were the words that he had received from Jesus Christ, that these were God's words. Leon Morris states that to preach interesting little moral essays can never prove an adequate substation for the word that comes from God. There's a power and might in the word of God. This is why churches must never cease to preach and proclaim the word of God. 
We can't move away from preaching from Scripture and just preach good moral messages or just encouraging antidotes, but we must root our preaching in the church, in the Word of God, because that is where the power and strength lie. Well, Paul is thankful that as he has preached the word that the Thessalonians have heard and received the truth and that his words, the words of God spoken through him, have impacted their lives. It has truly transformed the lives of the Thessalonians. And this is the marker of an authentic faith. And it's another reason why we continue to pursue after the word of God because it continually transforms our lives as we submit under the authority of Scripture. What we know, though, as well, is that not everyone who hears the good news will accept it, though. Paul is thankful that the Thessalonians that he's writing to did accept the word of God, but some will negate the truth of the word of God. Some will choose to not believe it, but this doesn't mean that it's not true. Charles Spurgeon suggests that it is like the case of an Irishman who tried to upset the evidence by non-evidence. And this is what he said. He said, four witnesses saw him commit a murder, And he pleaded that he was not guilty and wished to establish his innocence by producing 40 persons who did not see him do it. Of what use would that have been? So if 40 people declare that there was no power in the Holy Ghost going with the word, this only proves that the 40 people do not know what the others know. You see, truth is truth. Even if all do not perceive it as such, even if all do not bow before the word of God and before Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it doesn't change the fact that the word of God is truth. It doesn't change the fact that Jesus is the Messiah just because some deny it. And the word of God is truth. Jesus is the Messiah and he is the only way to the Father is through him. Well, Paul continues in verse 14 showing how the work of the word of God in the lives of believers has led to transformation. Look with me at the beginning of verse 14. It says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So the result of the work of the gospel in the lives of these Christians is that they're beginning to imitate the churches in Judea. This imitation, which we've already seen referenced as they imitated Paul and his companions, we now see that they're also imitating the church in Judea, which is a great thing because the church in Judea was established prior to the one in Thessalonica. It would have been an example of what it practically looked like to be the church in this day and age. As Jesus' movement, the way Christianity is gaining steam, as people are trying to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian as opposed to a Jew? What does it mean to worship Jesus as the risen Savior as opposed to just worshiping Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament? And so the church in Thessalonica looks to the church in Judea as to what it looks like to pursue following after Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The ESV Study Bible says that genuine offspring bears the traits of their parents. The Judean churches were the first indisputably authentic churches and the mother church of all those planted by Paul. They established a standard by which all other churches might measure themselves. You see, imitation is important. Now, first and foremost, Christians are to imitate Christ. That is what we are seeking after. That is who we are seeking after. And we are trying to make our lives reflect as Jesus Christ. But we can still learn from watching other Christians who are also following after Christ. We can still learn by watching other churches who are pursuing after Christ and living authentically Christian lives. 
And so the Thessalonians imitate the churches in Judea and are learning from them what it means to live as a church. This is a good reminder for us that we never know when others are looking at us. We never know when others are looking at our church and seeing what does it mean to be a church here in Springfield? What does it mean to live and seek to reflect Jesus Christ to a community? Well, let's look at how that church off 13th and D Street, 14th and D Street, reflects Christ. And so we must be aware of that as we seek to follow Christ well. That others may look to us as to an example of what that means. Just like the Thessalonians looked to the churches in Judea. Well, verse 14 introduces the imitation of the Thessalonians to the church in Judea. But Paul continues in 14b by showing this continued relationship between the two. Look with me at 14b. It says, For you suffered the same thing from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. So Paul relates their imitation of the churches and how they're following each other as well to the suffering that they are enduring. The church in Judea suffered from the Jews, whereas the Thessalonians suffered from their own countrymen. Paul doesn't mention in these verses the specifics of how they suffered, but we can learn from other verses some of what has occurred. In Acts 17.5, it tells us, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And that was in Thessalonica where that occurred. In 2 Thessalonians 1.4, it says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. You see, we know that the church in Thessalonica endured suffering and persecution and opposition in their city. And so Paul relates their suffering with that of the churches in Judea, talking about the suffering that both have endured at the hands of those who are opposed to them. And Paul says that the Jews are who killed Jesus, the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove them out. In Luke 24, 19 through 20, it tells us that Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. You see, the Jewish authorities were the ones who schemed, who handed Jesus over to be crucified. And that's what Paul is attesting to here in 1, Corinthians 2, 1 Thessalonians 2.15. Not only does Paul speak about Jesus being handed over, but he also references the prophets being killed by the Jews. And we see examples of this mentioned in Jeremiah and in Matthew. Jeremiah 2.30 says, In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. And Matthew 23, 29-34 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So Jesus is speaking to the religious elite in the Jewish system. He says, For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the rites, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. 
Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. You see, the Jewish people bore a responsibility for killing the prophets throughout the ages. Those messengers that God had sent to proclaim that Israel needed to turn from their ways, repent, and be right with God. And yet, they turned their back on the prophets. They turned their back and turn on the word of God. And in their unwillingness to hear God's word, they chose instead to kill the prophets rather than to heed their words of truth. These actions that Paul alludes to here, the killing of Jesus, the prophets, and driving Paul and his companions out, it's displeasing to God. And in turn, it also opposes all mankind, Paul says. He shows in verse 16 the way in which the behavior of the Jews opposes all mankind is that it hinders speaking to the Gentiles in order that they too might be saved. You see, Paul and his companions want to share the message of Christ with all who will listen. It's for the purpose that all who hear it might be saved. The heart and desire of Paul and of Silas and Timothy is not just that the Jews would hear the message of Christ, but that the Gentiles too would get to hear the good news of who Jesus Christ is. Paul doesn't want to just sit on the information that he has. But he wants to proclaim it in order that all may experience salvation through Christ. And this is part of what's angered the Jews in Thessalonica so much. That Paul and his companions would even suggest that a Gentile could receive salvation. That Gentile could be saved without first becoming a Jew. And this exclusive attitude has led to a filling up of their measure of sins that Paul references. The point that Paul is making here is that these rejections of the prophets and of Jesus and now the gospel message are showing the way in which the Jewish people have continually resisted God's divine initiative, thus leading to the sins of these people coming to a complete measure before divine judgment, which is poured out upon them. You see, they continue to add to their sins until they reach their limit and in turn experience the wrath of God. Paul concludes our verses today by stating that God's wrath has come upon them at last, implying that they will receive or have received a punishment for their wicked behavior. Now this could be read as an encouragement to the Thessalonians as they endure persecution, knowing that God is the ultimate judge, that he will judge fairly and appropriately, and that none will escape God's judgment. You see, Paul's intent in writing this letter is to encourage the Thessalonians. And in this passage, to encourage them that they have chosen rightly, accepting the word of God as truth. Even though they might face difficulty, even though things may not go how they hoped, they can be secure in the knowledge of their future hope. A future hope that does not exist for those who reject God and his grace. The only thing awaiting those who reject God and his word and his grace is wrath. And Paul wants them to know that. He wants them to know that there is a hope in the path that they have chosen, accepting the word of God as truth. 
Well, today as we continue to seek to model our lives after Jesus and the truth of his word, we too can be encouraged and also warned by the passage today. Encouraged that if we face hardships, that we can continue to persevere with our eyes fixed upon Christ. And warned that if we turn from God, that there are consequences to this decision. And with that being said, I want to put forward a few ways that we can seek to put these words into practice today. The first and foremost is that we are to receive God's word regularly. There's an importance in receiving God's word and letting it shape our lives. I was watching a video this week. I I decided not to show you all because I thought it would make some people squeamish. But I showed my son Silas, and it's an elderly lady who is having problems seeing. Her vision was blurred. And so she went to her eye doctor, and the eye doctor found that she had 23 layers of contact lenses in her eye. She either didn't know she had put them in or forgot she had put them in. And as her vision was blurred, she kept thinking she didn't have her contacts in, so she'd put in another one to try to see better. Now, thankfully, they were able to remove all the lenses, and there was no permanent damage done. But like the blinding physical effects of these layers of lenses, the effect of spiritual blindness can build up slowly, creeping into our lives as we focus on things through worldly lenses. When we view the world without the benefit of the light of the word of God, we just keep adding layer upon layer of worldly perspective upon previous layer until we either realize that our perspective is skewed and seek help or we simply over time become blind to our own blindness. And we see this type of situation referenced in 2 Corinthians 4.4 where Paul says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It may take someone else making us aware of our skewed vision, helping us to remove the layers of the worldly perspective and opening our eyes to the clarity of the scriptural world view. But don't give in to delusion. Don't wait until you are utterly blind. Seek help and look to the word of God to bring clarity and light to the eyes of your soul. Psalm 119, 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And later on in 119, verse 32, it says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. See, part of seeing clearly, part of having a biblical, godly view in our lives and worldview is receiving God's word regularly. So commit yourself to be in the word of God. Read your Bible daily. Commit yourself to be a part of a church that commits themselves to preaching the word of God. Make sure that your life is shaped by the word of God rather than you shaping your life based off of the world around you. Secondly is be prepared to suffer. As we see the Thessalonians suffered for their faith, the apostle Paul suffered for his faith and countless people we read about through church history have had to suffer for their faith. This may not mean that you actually have to physically suffer for your faith, that you may be persecuted in that manner, but it may mean that you are ridiculed or mocked or even just look different because of your faith. I remember when I was in community college, I was in a philosophy class, and I really enjoyed the philosophy class. I really liked my professor 
in my class. But he informed our class at one point that in the coming week, he was going to bring a tarot card reader to our class. He wanted to expose us to different beliefs and different uh, systems of belief. And so he thought it would be great for students to get to experience a tarot card reader. And I remember leaving class that day thinking, I can't be in there. I'm not going to align myself in any way, shape, or form with something that I believe is pure evil. And so I wrestled with what do I do? How do I handle this? I didn't want to get marked down for not being there. I didn't want to lose a grade for not participating, but I also refused to participate. And so I talked to my professor and I let him know that I wouldn't be in class that day. I told him I'd sit outside so he knew that I was there and he knew I was committed to the class, but I wouldn't partake in what he was offering to the class. And I looked different. I was the only one in my class who wasn't sitting in class that day. And people watched me as they took breaks and they walked out and there I was sitting in the hall and people wanted to know, why aren't you in class? Like you're obviously here, but you're not in class. You see, I looked different because of my faith. Now it wasn't a suffering where I was beaten for my faith, where I was close to death because of my faith, but it was a willingness to look different, a willingness to suffer if need be even a willingness to lose a grade if need be for the sake of what I believe truth is and what it means to follow Christ. In suffering, I believe that we can find encouragement, though, when we are called those who have followed God, who have suffered as well, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, men and women who have suffered for the sake of following the Lord. And ultimately, we see a beautiful picture of suffering in the life of Jesus Christ as he encountered death at the hands of his own people. So we should prepare ourselves to persevere in a world that is in opposition to the things of God and ask ourselves, what are we willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? What are we willing to suffer to follow Jesus authentically in this world and then be willing to courageously walk that path that the Lord lays before us? And the third and last thing I believe that this text can lead us to do is to pray for those who are opposed to the gospel. The text is clear today on two aspects, that there are those who are opposed to the gospel and that there is wrath that is coming. As those who have received the grace of Jesus Christ and know what it means to live in light of the gospel, we should be concerned for our brothers and our sisters who do not know Jesus. This concern should lead us to pray for those who are opposed to the gospel, that they may come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Armin Giesewein, uh, who was used by God in a tremendous move of his spirit, God's spirit, in Norway in the 30s, and later became a personal intercessor for Billy Graham, he said this, he said, Prayer is the lifeline of New Testament evangelism, the oxygen for its holy fire. The New Testament was born in prayer, It knows no evangelism without prayer and no prayer which does not lead to evangelism. So we too must be willing to commit to pray for those who don't know Jesus, to pray for those who are lost, that they would find Christ, pray for opportunities for them to hear the gospel, pray for their hardened hearts to be softened, and pray for revival. And you may wonder, well, why would we do that? Because it's God's heart. Because God cares for the lost. Because God cared enough for the lost that he came and found us. 
that God cared enough for you and for me that he sent his son to die for us on the cross. And the reality is that doesn't end with us just because we've received the good news. Just because we've chosen to believe in Christ does not mean that our neighbors who don't know Jesus, God didn't also die for them. That God doesn't also care about their salvation as well. Jesus sacrificed for the lost. The apostles lived their lives with a heart for the lost. And the lost are helpless without Christ. And so we should be concerned for them and we should pray for them. I found a great uh, little prayer acronym that I'd suggest that you use as you pray for the lost. And it's just heart. H, pray for their hearing, that they would hear the word of God. E, pray for eyes to see. A, pray for their attitude, that it would be receptive to Christ. R, pray that they would be released to trust Christ. And then T, pray for transformed lives. But we should care for those who don't know Jesus, as Paul did when he went to Thessalonica and preached the gospel, as the church of Thessalonica did, and as countless people throughout history have done. We should have a passion and a longing to see those who don't know Jesus come to know him as their Lord and Savior. Paul's words here to his beloved church in Thessalonica served as an encouragement during difficult times. The church continued on in their pursuit of Jesus even when they were faced with opposition. And one may wonder how they were able to do this, how the Apostle Paul was able to continue after being beaten and persecuted. It's fairly simple. Their lives were based upon the Word of God, the true Word of God. And in turn, the Word of God was at work in their lives as they submitted to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So may we, may we too base our lives upon the true word of God. May it shape our thoughts and our beliefs, our actions and our beings so that we too may see God at work in each one of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul and for Silas and for Timothy, for their commitment to your word, for their lives that were lived selflessly for you. Lord, as we seek to follow in your footsteps, Lord, may you help us to see things as you see things. May you give us a heart that is in line with your heart, that is burdened for the things that burden you. And Lord, may our lives glorify you as we seek to follow you each and every day, as we seek to love those that you have placed around us. And so Lord, anchor us in your word. Correct us through it when we need correction. Encourage us when we need encouragement. And may we know your grace and love as we see it poured out through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for this time today in your word, learning from your word. May it change us to reflect you more and more each and every day. We pray this in your holy and matchless name. Amen.